Chapter Six of The Last Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. The Last Trail by Zane Gray. Chapter Six. Happier days than she had hoped for dawned upon Helen after the first touch of border sorrow. Mabel Lane did not die. Helen and Betty nursed the stricken girl tenderly weeping for every joy when signs of improvement appeared. She had remained silent for several days, always with that haunting fear in her eyes. And then, gradually, came a change. Tender care and nursing had due effect in banishing the dark shadow. One morning, after a long sleep, she awakened with a bright smile, and from that time her improvement was rapid. Helen wanted Mabel to live with her. The girl's position was pitiable, homeless, fatherless, with not a relative on the border, yet so brave, so patient, that she aroused all the sympathy in Helen's breast. Village gossip was in substance that Mabel had given her love to a young frontiersman by name Alex Bennett, who had an affection for her, so it was said, but as yet had made no choice between her and the other lasses of the settlement. What effect Mabel's terrible experience might have on this lukewarm lover, Helen could not even guess. But she was not hopeful as to the future. Colonel Zane and Betty approved of Helen's plan to persuade Mabel to live with her, and the latter's faint protestations they silenced by claiming she could be of great assistance in the management of the house. Therefore it was settled. Finally the day came when Mabel was ready to go with Helen. Betty had given her a generous supply of clothing, for all her belongings had been destroyed when the cabin was burned. With Helen's strong young arm around her, she voiced her gratitude to Betty and Mrs. Zane, and started toward the shepherd home. From the green square where the ground was highest, an unobstructed view could be had of the valley. Mabel gazed down the river to where her home formerly stood, only a faint dark spot like a blur on the green landscape, could be seen. Her soft eyes filled with tears, but she spoke no word. "'She's game, and that's why she didn't go under,' Colonel Zane said to himself, as he mused on the strength and spirit of border women. To their heroism, more than any other thing, he attributed the establishing of homes in this wilderness. In the days that ensued, as Mabel grew stronger, the girls became very fond of each other. Helen would have been happy at any time with such a sweet companion, but just then, when the poor girl's mind was so sorely disturbed, she was doubly glad. For several days after Mabel was out of danger, Helen's thoughts had dwelt on a subject which caused extreme vexation. She had begun to suspect that she encouraged too many admirers for whom she did not care and thought too much of a man who did not reciprocate. She was gay and moody in turn. During the moody hours she suspected herself, and in her gay ones scorned the idea that she might ever care for a man who was indifferent. But that thought, once admitted, had a trick of returning at odd moments, clouding her cheerful moods. One sunshiny morning, while the mayflowers smiled under the hedge, when dew sparkled on the leaves, and the locust blossoms shone creamy white amid the soft green of the trees, 
The girls set about their much-planned flower gardening. Helen was passionately fond of plants, and had brought a jar of seeds of her favorites all the way from her eastern home. We'll plant the morning glories so they'll run up the porch, and the dahlias in this long row and the nasturtiums in the round bed, Helen said. You will have some trailing arbutus, added Mabel, and must have clematis, wild honeysuckle, and golden glow, for they are all sweet flowers. This arbutus is so fresh, so dewy, so fragrant, said Helen, bending aside a lilac bush to see the pale creeping flowers. I never saw anything so beautiful. I grow more and more in love with my new home and friends. I have such a pretty garden to look into, and I never tire of the view beyond. Helen gazed with pleasure and pride at the garden, with its fresh green and lavender-crested lilacs, at the white-blossomed trees, and the vine-covered log cabins, with blue smoke curling from their stone chimneys. Beyond the great bulk of the fort stood guard above the willow-skirted river, and far away, over the winding stream, the dark hills, defiant, kept their secrets. If it weren't for that threatening fort, one could imagine this little hamlet nestling under the great bluff, as quiet and secure as it is beautiful, said Helen. But that charred stockade fence, with its scarred bastions and these lowering portholes, always keep me alive to reality. It wasn't very quiet when Gertie was here, Mabel replied thoughtfully. Were you in the fort then? asked Helen breathlessly. Oh, yes. I cooled the rifles for the men, replied Mabel calmly. Tell me all about it. Helen listened again to a story she had heard many times, but told by new lips. It always gained in vivid interest. She never tired of hearing how the notorious renegade Gertie rode around the fort on his white horse, giving the defenders an hour in which to surrender. She learned again of the attack, when the British soldiers remained silent on an adjoining hillside, while the Indians yelled exultantly and ran about in fiendish glee when Wetzel began the battle by shooting an Indian chieftain who had ventured within range of his ever-fatal rifle. And when it came to the heroic deeds of the memorable siege, Helen could not contain her enthusiasm. She shed tears over little Harry Bennett's death at the South Bastion, where, though riddled with bullets, he stuck to his post until relieved. Clark's race across the roof of the fort to extinguish a burning arrow she applauded with clapping hands. Her great eyes glowed and burned. But she was silent when hearing how Wetzel ran alone to a break in the stockade, and there, with an axe, the terrible borderman held at bay the whole infuriated Indian mob until the breach was closed. Lastly, Betty Zane's, never to be forgotten, run with the powder to the relief of the garrison, and the saving of the fort was something not to cry over or applaud but to dream of and to glorify. Down the slope from Colonel Zane's cabin is where Betty ran with the powder, said Mabel, pointing. Did you see her? asked Helen. Yes, I looked out of a porthole. The Indians stopped firing at the fort in their eagerness to shoot Betty. Oh, the banging of guns and yelling of savages was one fearful, dreadful roar. Through all that hail of bullets, Betty ran swift as the wind. I almost wish Gertie would come again, said Helen. Don't he might. How long has Betty's husband, Mr. Clark, been dead? inquired Helen. I don't remember exactly. He didn't live long after the siege. Some say he inhaled the flames while fighting fire inside the stockade. 
How sad! Yes, it was. It nearly killed Betty. But we border girls do not give up easily. We must not, replied Mabel, an unquenchable spirit showing through the sadness of her eyes. Merry voices interrupted them, and they turned to see Betty and Nell entering the gate. With Nell's bright chatter and Betty's wit, the conversation became indeed vivacious, running from gossip to gowns and then to that old and ever-new theme, love. Shortly afterward the colonel entered the gate, with swinging step and genial smile. "'Well, now, if here aren't four handsome lasses,' he said with an admiring glance. "'Ebb, I believe, if you were single, any girl might well suspect you of being a flirt,' said Betty. "'No girl ever did. I tell you I was a lady-killer in my day,' replied Colonel Zane, straightening his fine form. He was indeed handsome, with his stalwart frame, dark, bronzed face, and rugged, manly bearing. "'Bess said you were, but that it didn't last long after you saw her,' cried Betty, mischief gleaming in her dark eye. "'Well, that's so,' replied the colonel, looking a trifle crestfallen. "'But you know every dog has his day.' Then, advancing to the porch, he looked at Mabel with a more serious gaze, as he asked, "'How are you today?' "'Thank you, Colonel Zane. I am getting quite strong. "'Look up the valley. There is a raft coming down the river,' said he softly. Far up the broad Ohio a square patch showed dark against the green water. Colonel Zane saw Mabel start, and a dark red flush came over her pale face. For an instant she gazed with an expression of appeal, almost fear. He knew the reason. Alex Bennett was on the raft. I came over to ask if I can be of any service. Tell him, she answered simply. I say, Betts, Colonel Zane cried, has Helen's cousin cast any more such uh, sheep eyes on you? Oh, Eb, what nonsense, exclaimed Betty, blushing furiously. Well, if he didn't look sweet at you, I'm an old fool. You're one, anyway. "'And you're horrid,' said Betty, tears of anger glistening in her eyes. Colonel Zane whistled softly as he walked down the lane. He went into the wheelwright's shop to see about some repairs he was having made on a wagon, and then strolled on down to the river. Two Indians were sitting on the rude long wharf, together with several frontiersmen and rivermen, all waiting for the raft. He conversed with the Indians, who were friendly Chippewas, until the raft was tied up. The first person to leap on shore was a sturdy young fellow with a shock of yellow hair and a warm, ruddy skin. "'Hello, Alex. Did you have a good trip?' asked Colonel Zane of the youth. "'How are you, Colonel Zane?' "'Yes, first-rate trip,' replied young Bennett. "'Say, I've a word for you. Come aside.' And drawing Colonel Zane out of earshot of the others, he continued, "'I heard this by accident. Not that I didn't spy a bit when I got interested, for I did.' But the way it came about was all chance. Briefly, there's a man, evidently an Englishman, at Fort Pitt, whom I overheard say he was out on the border after a shepherd girl. I happened to hear from one of Brant's men, who rode into Pitt's just before we left, that you had new friends here by that name. This fellow was a handsome chap, no common sort, but lordly, dissipated and reckless as the devil. He had a servant traveling with him, a sailor by his gab, who was about the toughest customer I've met in many a day. 
He cut a fellow in bad shape at Pitt. Those two will be on the next boat, due here in a day or so, according to river and weather conditions, and, I thought, considering how unusual the thing was, I'd better tell you. Well, well, said Colonel Zane reflectively. He recalled Shepard's talk about an Englishman. Alex, you did well to tell me. Was the man drunk when he said he came west after a woman? Sure he was, replied Alex, but not when he spoke the name. You see, I got suspicious and asked him. It's this way. Jake Wentz, the trader, told me the fellow asked for the shepherds when he got off the wagon train. When I first seen him, he was drunk, and I heard Jeff Lynn say as how the border was a bad place to come after a woman. That's what made me prick up my ears. Then the Englishman said, It is, eh? By God, I'd go to hell after a woman I wanted. And Colonel, he looked it too. Colonel Zane remained thoughtful while Alex made up a bundle and forced the heft of an axe under the string. But as the young man started away, the colonel suddenly remembered his errand down to the wharf. Alex, come back here, he said, and wondered if the lad had good stuff in him. The boatman's face was plain but not evil, and a close scrutiny of it rather prepossessed the colonel. Alex, I've some bad news for you and then, bluntly, with his keen gaze fastened on the young man's face, he told of old Lane's murder, of Mabel's abduction, and of her rescue by Wetzel. Alex began to curse and swear vengeance. Stow all that, said the colonel sharply. Wetzel followed four Indians who had Mabel and some stolen horses. The redskins quarreled over the girl, and two took the horses, leaving Mabel to the others. Wetzel went after these last, tomahawked them, and brought Mabel home. She was in a bad way, but is now getting over the shock. "'Say, what'd we do here without Wetzel?' Alex asked huskily, unmindful of the tears that streamed from his eyes and ran over his brown cheeks. "'Poor old Jake! Poor Mabel! Damn me! It's my fault. If I'd a done right and married her as I should, as I wanted to, she wouldn't have had to suffer.' but I'll marry her yet, if she'll have me. It was only because I had no farm, no stock, and only that little cabin as is full now that I waited. Alex, you know me, said Colonel Zane in kindly tones. Look there, down the clearing half a mile, see that green strip of land along the river, with the big chestnut in the middle and a cabin beyond. There's as fine farming land as can be found on the border. Eighty acres, well watered. The day you marry Mabel, that farm is yours. Alex grew red, stammered, and vainly tried to express his gratitude. Come along. The sooner you tell Mabel, the better, said the colonel, with glowing face. He was a good matchmaker. He derived more pleasure from a little charity bestowed upon a deserving person than from a season's crops. When they arrived at the shepherd house, the girls were still on the porch. Mabel rose when she saw Alex, standing white and still. He, poor fellow, was embarrassed by the others who regarded him with steady eyes. Colonel Zane pushed Alex up on the porch, and said in a low voice, Mabel, I've just arranged something you're to give to Alex. It's a nice little farm, and it'll be a wedding present. 
Mabel looked in a bewildered manner from Colonel Zane's happy face to the girl's, and then at the red, joyous features of her lover. Only then did she understand, and uttering a strange little cry, put her trembling hands to her bosom as she swayed to and fro. But she did not fall, for Alex, quick at the last, leapt forward and caught her in his arms. That evening Helen denied herself to Mr. Brandt and several other callers. She sat on the porch with her father while he smoked his pipe. "'Where's Will?' she asked. "'Gone after Snipe,' so he said,' replied her father. "'Snipe! How funny! Imagine Will hunting. He's surely catching the wild fever Colonel Zane told us about. He surely is.' Then came a time of silence. Mr. Shepard, accustomed to Helen's Gladstone spirit and prosperity to gay chatter, noted how quiet she was, and wondered, "'Why are you so still?' "'I'm a little homesick,' Helen replied reluctantly. "'No. Well, I declare this is a glorious country, but not for such as you, dear, who love music and gaiety. I often fear you'll not be happy here, and—' Then I long for the old home, which reminds me of your mother. Dearest, forget what I said, cried Helen earnestly. I'm only a little blue today, perhaps not at all homesick. Indeed, you always seemed happy. Father, I am happy. It's only, only a girl's foolish sentiment. I've got something to tell you, Helen, and it has bothered me since Colonel Zane spoke of it tonight. Mordaunt is coming to Fort Henry. Mordaunt? Oh, impossible! Who said so? How did you learn? I fear it is true, my dear. Colonel Zane told me he had heard of an Englishman at Fort Pitt who asked after us. Moreover, the feller answers the description of Mordaunt. I am afraid it is he, and come after you. Suppose he has. Who cares? We owe him nothing. He cannot hurt us. But, Helen, he's a desperate man. Aren't you afraid of him? Not I, cried Helen, laughing in scorn. He'd better have a care. He can't run things with a high hand out here on the border. I told him I would have none of him, and that ended it. I'm much relieved. I didn't want to tell you, but it seemed necessary. Well, child, good night. I'll go to bed. Long after Mr. Shepherd had retired, Helen sat thinking. Memories of the past, and of the unwelcome suitor, Mordaunt, thronged upon her thick and fast. She could see him now, with his pale, handsome face and distinguished bearing. She had liked him, as she had other men, until he involved her father with himself in financial ruin, and had made his attention to her unpleasantly persistent. Then he had followed the fall of fortune with wild dissipation, and became a gambler and a drunkard. But he did not desist in his mad wooing. He became like her shadow, and life grew to be unendurable, until her father planned to emigrate west, when she hailed the news with joy, and now Mordaunt had tracked her to her new home. She was sick with disgust. Then her spirit, always strong and now freer for this new wild life of the frontier, rose within her and she dismissed all thoughts of this man and his passion. The old life was dead and buried. She was going to be happy here. As for the present, it was enough to think of the little border village, now her home, 
of her girlfriends, of the quiet borderman, and, for the moment, that the twilight was somber and beautiful. High up on the wooded bluff, rising so gloomily over the village, she saw among the trees something silver-bright. She watched it rise slowly from behind the trees, now hidden, now white through rifts in the foliage, until it soared lovely and grand above the black horizon. The ebony shadows of night seemed to lift, as might a sable mantle moved by invisible hands, but dark shadows, safe from the moon-rays, lay under the trees, and a pale, misty vapor hung below the brow of the bluff. Mysterious as had grown the night before darkness yielded to the moon, this pale, white light, flooding the still valley, was even more soft and strange. To one of Helen's temperament, no thought was needed. To see was enough. Yet her mind was active. She felt with haunting power the beauty of all before her, in fancy transporting herself far to those silver-tipped clouds, and peopling the dells and shady nooks under the hills with spirits and fairies, maidens and valiant knights. To her the day was as a far-off dream. The great watch-stars grew wan before the radiant moon. It rained alone. The immensity of the world with its glimmering rivers, pensive valleys, and deep, gloomy forests lay revealed under the glory of the clear light. Absorbed in this contemplation, Helen remained a long time gazing with dreamy ecstasy at the moonlit valley until a slight chill disturbed her happy thoughts. She knew she was not alone. Trembling, she stood up to see, easily recognizable in the moonlight, the tall, buckskin-garbed figure of Jonathan Zane. "'Well, sir,' she called sharply, yet with a tremor in her voice. The borderman came forward and stood in front of her. Somehow he appeared changed. The long black rifle, the dull, glinting weapons made her shudder. Wilder and more untamable he looked than ever. The very silence of the forest clung to him. The fragrance of the grassy plains came faintly from his buckskin garments. "'Evening, lass,' he said, in his slow, cool manner. "'How did you get here?' asked Helen presently, because he made no effort to explain his presence at such a late hour. "'I was able to walk.' Helen observed with a vaulting spirit, one ever ready to rise in arms, that Master Zane was disposed to add humor to his penetrating mysteriousness. She flushed hot, and then paled. This borderman certainly possessed the power to vex her, and reluctantly, she admitted, to chill her soul and rouse her fear. She strove to keep back sharp words, because she had learned that this singular individual always gave good reason for his odd actions. I think in kindness to me, she said, choosing her words carefully. You might tell me why you appear so suddenly, as if you had sprung out of the ground. Are you alone? Yes, father's in bed. So is Mabel, and Will has not yet come home. Why? Has no one else been here? Mr. Brandt came, as did some others, but wishing to be alone, I did not see them, replied Helen in perplexity. Have you seen Brant since? Since when? The night I watched by the lilac bush. Yes, several times, replied Helen. 
Something in his tone made her ashamed. I couldn't very well escape when he called. Are you surprised because after he insulted me, I'd see him again? Yes. Helen felt more ashamed. You don't love him, he continued. Helen was so surprised she could only look into the dark face above her. Then she dropped her gaze, abashed by his searching eyes. But thinking of his question, she subdued the vague stirrings of pleasure in her breast and answered coldly, No, I do not. But for the service you rendered me, I should never have answered such a question. I'm glad, and hope you care as little for the other five men who were here that night. I declare, Master Zane, you seem exceedingly interested in the affairs of a young woman who you won't visit except as you have come tonight. He looked at her with his piercing eyes. You spied upon my guests, she said, in no wise abashed now that her temper was high. Did you care so very much? Care? he asked slowly. Yes. You were interested to know how many of my admirers were here, what they did, and what they said. You even hint disparagingly of them. True. I wanted to know, he replied but I don't hit about any man. "'You are so interested you wouldn't call on me when I invited you,' said Helen, with poorly veiled sarcasm. It was this that made her bitter. She could never forget that she had asked this man to come to see her, and he had refused. "'I reckon you've mistook me,' he said calmly. "'Why did you come? Why do you shadow my friends?' This is twice you have done it. Goodness knows how many times you've been here. Tell me. The borderman remained silent. Answer me, commanded Helen, her eyes blazing. She actually stamped her foot. Borderman or not, you have no right to pry into my affairs. If you are a gentleman, tell me why you came here. The eyes Jonathan turned on Helen stilled all the angry throbbing of her blood. I came here to learn which of your lovers is the dastard who plotted the abduction of Mabel Lane, and the thief who stole our hosses. When I find the villain, I reckon Wetzel, and I'll swing him to some tree." The borderman's voice rang sharp and cold, and when he ceased speaking, she sank back upon the step, shocked, speechless, to gaze up at him with staring eyes. Don't look so, last. Don't be frightened, he said, his voice gentle and kind as it had been hard. He took her hand in his. You nettled me into replying, and you have a sharp tongue, lass, and when I spoke I was thinking of him. I'm sorry. A horse-thief and worse than murderer among my friends, murmured Helen, shuddering. Yet she never thought to doubt his word. I followed him here the night of your company. Do you know which one? No. He still held her hand unconsciously, but Helen knew it well. A sense of his strength came with the warm pressure and comforted her. She would need that powerful hand, surely, in the evil days which seemed to darken the horizon. What shall I do? she whispered, shuddering again. Keep this secret between you and me. How can I? How can I? You must. 
His voice was deep and low. If you tell your father or anyone, I might lose the chance to find this man. For lass, he's desperate cunning. Then he'd go free to rob others and maybe help make off with other poor girls, lass. Keep my secret. But he might try to carry me away, said Helen in fearful perplexity. Most likely he might, replied the borderman with the smile that came so rarely. Oh, knowing all this, how can I meet any of these men again? I'd betray myself. No, you've got too much pluck. It so happens you are the one to help me, and Wenzel rid the border of these hellhounds, and you won't fail. I know a woman when it comes to that. I, I help you and Wetzel? Exactly. Gracious, cried Helen, half laughing, half crying. And poor me with more trouble coming on the next boat. Lass, the colonel told me about the Englishman. It'll be bad for him to annoy you. Helen thrilled with the depth of meaning in the low voice. Fate surely was weaving a bond between her and this borderman. She felt it in his steady, piercing gaze, in her own tingling blood. Then, as her natural courage dispelled all girlish fears, she faced him, white, resolute, with a look in her eyes that matched his own. I will do what I can, she said. End of chapter 6